certainly if we look at the world of death, we always think of the idea of Valhalla, this again very male-centered world, but most people, most cases, we're dealing with a world of death and darkness that's ruled by a woman, uh, like Hel, for example, and Raun, and Freya, and Skadi, and Gebjörn, which I have a student working on at the moment. Why is it that women are associated with death? But maybe that means that we have to get beyond looking at death as we look at it and see death as being life. This is what happens in nature, that death becomes life, mm. and that life and death are actually part of the same thing. Welcome to Fair Folk. I'm Danica Boyce. Hello, friends. I have a beautiful conversation to share with you today with Terry Gunnell, professor of folklore at the University of Iceland in Reykjavik. I have been in contact with Terry Gunnell for a number of years, firstly because he appeared on my episode about elves some years ago. He initiated a large-scale poll of Icelanders about their belief in elves and discovered that elf belief is quite high in Iceland to this day. In more recent years, he's continued his research on masks and mumming traditions in northern European countries from Iceland through Scandinavia and into Scotland, especially northern Scotland, which shares a number of cultural elements with Scandinavian countries, including language. Because many of the costuming and masking traditions that exist in Northern Europe are undertaken in the winter season, beginning around Halloween and also punctuated by the winter solstice festivities, I figured that Terry would be the perfect person to bring on the podcast to talk about the entire winter season and what characterizes it, what kind of rest and celebration people have taken part in over many centuries. And with the discussion of winter, I asked Terry if he would go into some of his research and more of his theoretical work on how the winter season used to be perceived prior to the Viking era in Scandinavia. The winter season used to, he theorizes, have a much stronger emphasis on women, on the feminine, and on goddesses in particular. I want to tell a little story about my life recently. I've been moving into a new house in a new province um, this week and packing up a lot of my things. And while I've been going through my things, I've gotten to look through old photographs and old letters from friends and lovers. And I've got a really beautiful long view on my life over the last two decades as an adult human. And I really noticed that in the last 10 years or so, I've undergone an enormous transformation of how I view myself in the world. I've undertaken new habits that allow me to be healthy in my body and in my mind. I've taken on a new career where I get to do what I love every single day, no matter how fantastical it sounds. I have a much healthier approach to relationships now than I ever had. I'm basically just maturing into a, a version of myself that I really enjoy and am super proud of. And what I realized as I was going through these materials and reflecting on my life is that the main difference between myself now and myself in early adulthood is that I'm telling myself different stories of what's possible for me. And so I asked 
in my Instagram following last night. That question, if you were to tell yourself a different, new story about who you get to be in the world, what would that story be? And the answers that I got from people were just incredibly inspiring and inspired. (laughs) People really, really want to be invited to tell a new story about their lives. And I realized that that's exactly what I'm also doing in the podcast. The people I'm in communication with, the people in my community, they want to be witches. They want to show up as artists. They want to be in community. They want to be pagan. You know, they want to be career pagans, just like I get to be. We get to be whatever we choose we want to be. And I think that that story and that reflection, who do you get to be in the world, is crucial to not only this whole podcast where we decide what stories we want to tell ourselves again and again and again, but also this episode in particular where Terry Gunnell talks about costuming and taking on the likeness and the habits of a monster or a god or simply someone outside of your ordinary understanding of who you are. I think that it's a beautiful idea to frame the entire winter season. We get to sit in limbo and often in darkness if we're living in northern climates, and think again and again about what stories we want to tell ourselves about who we get to be. I found this conversation extremely fulfilling, extremely rich in information and reflection, fuel for reflection. I am so proud and happy that I get to have conversations like this on the daily and that I get to share them with you through this miraculous medium called the internet and specifically podcasts where oral tradition gets superpowers and we get to tell the stories that we want to tell and we want to embody over and over and over again. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Professor Terry Gunnell of the University of Iceland. Hello, Terry. It's lovely to talk Hi. to you again. Likewise. I had you on my podcast many years ago to talk about elves, and um, and I've been keen to have you back for some time. So thank welcome. You. Yeah, um, thank you. Um, I know you partly because um, partly because of your your research on elf belief in Iceland, and Iceland is a big interest of mine, but also because you teach a really popular course on Old Norse religion at the University of Iceland. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious how you came to that field of research. Like, what is your general motivation? You must have some deep question that's bringing you to these topics. And I'm curious. There's there's two aspects to it. First of all, I've always been interested in Scandinavia. Um, And uh, the year between school and university, Spent a summer working in Norway, met an Icelandic, my wife now there, and uh, I went after that. I went to do went to university and studied um, drama and theatre arts, which has always been my own interest from when I was about the age of seven. Mm. And these areas sort of went together as time went on. Um, at university studying, for example, Ibsen, Strindberg, but at the same time always interested because we were going back to Norway so often in these ancient roots within Scandinavia, the sort of Viking period, um, which you can see in place names and all sorts of remains around Western Scandinavia. And then as, as time went on, I was still interested particularly in the idea of performances and rituals and things of this kind. 
then I'd noticed um, uh, when I was about to write my BA essay that that there had been a woman who wrote a, a book called the um, Ancient Scandinavian Drama by by Bertha Philpott. And this this was an argument that was very interesting, looking at how certain of the old Icelandic poems were monologues and dialogues. And she suggested that maybe they were connected to early dramas. But she was a solo woman in a very, very male field at that time. And she got reviews like, this is a very good book for a woman, but if I was uh, just to be, I want to be courteous, so I won't say any more about it, and things of this kind. And that, that whole idea was just dropped completely. And she then went went on later on to have to look after her father who was uh, as the women women did at the time and when she wrote wrote more she was one of the few people who could actually speak swedish scandinavian swedish danish norwegian icelandic walked around iceland in in uh, with her friends several times and still just dropped the whole idea and i wanted to come back to this as a drama person to see whether a i could perform these works um, without stepping into the state of drama and and then at the same time looking at the other evidence for, for for dramatic activities in Scandinavia, what evidence we have in terms of archaeology and then in later folk folk festivals. So that got me on to doing lectures for uh, American tourists about um, Vikings when we were in Norway, um, when I started becoming a becoming a senior high teacher later on, and later also lectures on on Norwegian folklore. And then as time went on, went on to develop this idea in, in my PhD thesis and found myself being invited to apply to teach folkloristics at the University of Iceland. So this is where it comes from. So it's, it's, it's deep. It's a deep love of Scandinavia and then also a deep love of, of performance and theatre arts mm. when it comes down to it. And beliefs. Mm -hmm. Long answer. <laughs> <laughs> so you feel you feel inspired to continue looking in that direction and learning what like why the traditions of drama no why not just like what people are doing now on the stage why yeah, is it historical aspect i'm interested in what happens when a, when, a, when a play is put on hmm. and, and especially when you have people wearing costumes coming into your kitchen uh, <laughs> in, in role and, and acting strangely hmm. um what what exactly is going on which is the sort of keyword of performance studies what on earth's going on here Mm -hmm. um, what's happening when people go to see a particular play within the theater? What message is it giving them? What is it, what's happening in these, these festivals? What's happening when a story is told to somebody? Why are they telling it? And what, what does it do to the landscape around it when it's told in the evening in the countryside somewhere? So these, these are all aspects of, of performance that I've always been interested in. So a text for me tends to be something that's, because we, in folklore you work with oral traditions a great deal, um, what happens when that text is performed mm. uh, in front of you as an audience member? And, and why do you, as a person, why do you do this? Why, why dress up in a costume, an animal costume and go around houses in the middle of winter? Mm -hmm. Interesting. <laughs> it's very interesting. And that's the yeah. reason that I have you here today specifically at this time of year, because mm -hmm. it's the beginning of the winter season and we've just passed just... Halloween. We're headed towards yeah. Christmas. You get outside my window, it's four o'clock and it's beginning to get dark. Exactly. <laughs> I'm still a little ready. Mm -hmm. And you're in Reykjavik now, right? Yeah. 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 That's where you work. Um, so there's this huge tradition that in some places is called guising. And we might call walking around in costumes and going from house to house. Mm -hmm. And that's something that you've been studying. This is something that happens over the winter season, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And 
and it happens not just in you know England and Scotland. No, no, it's really we're looking at trick and treating when it comes down to it. This is it's the background of um, sort of trick and treating that you get at Halloween, and in some places also it comes up at um, Ash Wednesday is perhaps the the latest time it comes up, which is connected to Carnival, of course. But especially it's in the in the in the winter season and in around the time of midwinter. And these are traditions that we find from Ireland right across Scandinavia, the North Atlantic Islands, running down through the Germanic countries in particular, but then you're going into the Slavic countries as well. And most recently I, I came across traditions in Sardinia, which were very, very similar, of people wearing full-sized animal costumes and carrying about 20, 30 kilos of belts on them, which was is, is heavy and painful, yeah. um, especially when you're locked in a sort of thick animal costume at the same time. So they, they all have the same sort of idea. And what we seem to be dealing with is, is a tradition that, that moves between different periods of the year, but its, its earliest route seems to be around the Halloween time. We come down to it. And Halloween, let's get away from the, the um, All Hallows idea to more the beginning of winter, which is uh, in Scandinavia and in Ireland, Celtic countries, the year was divided into two seasons and the winter came first and winter starts in the end of October, which the church has borrowed and taken to be Halloween later on. Ireland is called Savan. And it's that period when we, when we find most of these sort of mumming traditions originally. I say beginning of the year, it's a little bit like with the day, it was believed in these areas too, that the day begins about six o'clock in the evening, not in the morning. Mm -hmm. um, because you've got to get through the darkness first to go to the light afterwards, which is why Christmas Eve is so important. It's why New Year's Eve is so important. It's the eve, it's the evening, and then comes the day afterwards. So why in Scandinavia you get presents at, on, on Christmas Eve at six o'clock, that's when everything starts. So basically the beginning of winter being this sort of time, it's a little bit like New Year in our own time later on. And as we find later on, the same sort of traditions move to the, or become associated also with the, with, with the turning of the year um, as midwinter mm. as well, later on. Um, it's easily moved from there as the year is messed around with as it goes, we go from the Julian calendar uh, where they have to cut 14 days off it because midwinter has become 13th of December by this time. That's the longest night is 13th of December. So they cut 14 days off the year and create the Julian calendar which messes everybody up completely because suddenly what was the middle of winter at the 13th is now back at the 21st where Christmas had been is now now sort of in January and and we've you've got all sorts of festivals 20 you've really got 12 days of Christmas either side that's what, what's being created here mm -hmm. but then things are easily moved on to the new year period as well as a beginning time and same sort of traditions of going around between houses and then of course carnival naturally picks up the same sort of things elsewhere again the the ending of this this winter period so largely what we're dealing with is is the heart of this tradition which as i say i think is around the halloween period originally or the winter nights in iceland this was a time when when you tend to get young males going around from house to house in costumes wearing gloves faces covered completely sometimes uh, men acting women, and if you do have women, sometimes the other way around, and they, they knock on your door 
and they often pretend to be spirits that have come from outside that in a sense want to be received and what they mean is that they want to be given things like alcohol and food and then um, at the same time those at home take part in a game trying to guess who these people are by trying to try to read out from rings on their hands or the way that they speak but very often they don't they, they change their voices too so they speak like animals or they um sort of in um indrawn breaths where you speak like that all the time changing uh, and you get that certainly the remains of that up in newfoundland this this in, ingressive speech i've heard it in um, iceland too <laughs> yeah iceland all the, but that's, in iceland it's because the wind is so bad you just can't speak out loud you get get hit by a wind and get your words blown back in but basically yeah um so this this is the heart of these traditions and right across norway and in Iceland too, and down into Ger the Germanic countries, you tend to find that these figures are sort of horned figures, goat-like figures, mm. which have nothing to do with the devil. In, in Norway, Denmark, Sweden, they're called the Julebuk, the Christmas goat, or the Christmas, the Christmas buck, or the Christmas goat. Mm -hmm. Iceland, other sorts of names. And, and maybe if we want to go way back in time, you come back to the, the, the Feast of Dionysus in Greece, which again mm. is people dressing up as animals and overturning things, a sort of Saturnalia idea for a minute, which is a very long answer. <laughs> Perfect answer. I'm also curious how it's related to the to the horned figures that we see in the Alps around, you know, in December. Absolutely, absolutely the same figures. Mm -hmm. This is the same the same sort of figure. This uh, In the Alps, in Austria, you've got the, the Pechten and Krampus figures, mm -hmm. for example. They have other names elsewhere. Knechtruprecht, mm -hmm. uh, the uh, Habergeist. Um, all very similar figures, which St. Nicholas has become connected to later on mm -hmm. um, as, as a later sort of figure. But they, they, these, are, these are sort of winter figures that are going around between houses, in a sense, joining the local community. What's happening in, in Shetland, where I've, lo I've looked at these traditions in detail, they go, they make sure that they go to every house that they can. Mm. They're marking the community out. They don't go to somewhere maybe that's with outsiders in it. Um, or where somebody's mourning or something like this, but usually food is left out for them and you're expected to know the game rules, hmm. what, what goes on as they come and knock on your door. But generally the same sort of idea of a threat coming from outside. It's the heart of actually any drama or any, any, any television thriller, that hmm. everything's fine at the beginning, then something comes from outside, um, which has to be dealt with. And then at the end, we get back to normal. Basically any Bruce Willis diehard movie. Yeah, which are set at Christmas again, and the tentative, there you've got terrorists and whatever. Yes, there's always the the Russian showing up from from over the mountain. Yeah, and uh, unfortunately, Home Alone. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you you find there's a whole range of Icelandic legend, Nordic legends, which tell about the house being take houses being taken over by outsider figures or the wild ride that mm. comes in and takes over the house and the Christmas food at Christmas, and then leaves and goes away, and both mm. the what we do see is a very interesting interaction between the legends and the actual traditions of people visiting like this. So the, the visitors give life to the legends and prove the legends and the legends give a supernatural element to the visitors and they often pretend to be the same figures. That's um, really so, good so to know. I actually didn't, I didn't know that was explicit that the, that the figures themselves do pretend to be the supernatural. I mean, I see that they're dressing up at it, but when we think of trick or treaters, there's no like explicit 
Well, I guess they are. No, maybe they are saying that they are those figures, but somehow. Yes, yes. look, Santa Claus coming to the house as well, and you leave out food for him. Um, mm -hmm. We leave out cookies, and in a sense, we're doing the same thing there. The, the, the outsider figure that you welcome in, who brings Christmas with him to a certain extent, and then nowadays gives gift, gifts, but in the past you would have given them, which were then shared by the community often at the end of it, mm -hmm. uh, at some sort of big party. Right. There's. I remember, and in, in some of the things you've written, um, the the sense that these these visitors demand or expect offerings. That there's a there's a sense of mutual giving that's expected. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which you see in the name of the the names of the of the Icelandic Christmas men, sausage swiper, um, mm -hmm. meat hook, for example, mm -hmm. candle stealer. Mm -hmm. um, that, that they steal rather than giving in the in the original times. Well, they take. Mm -hmm. The Yule uh, lads, is that what they're known as? Yeah, in Iceland, Iceland you've got the Yule um, which, which you find also in Western Norway, the Christmas lads. Mm. Um, and again, this seems to go back to the guys who would be going around houses as well. So we have we have both a belief and a, and a legend tradition and, and a, an acted performative tradition too. Mm -hmm. it's, I'm curious about what the experiences of the people who are going you know so this is a i'm not sure if i mentioned but like this is across a large number of countries yeah like you mm -hmm. said across the north and then quite further south too and then of course it's echoed in the carnival and it's it's universal almost in europe mm -hmm. um but what what do you think is the like what do you think is the feeling inside someone when they're this is probably something that you've thought about when they're going I've, from house to house i've done it uh I, when we were doing field work in in denmark we, we did it I think for everybody who is involved in it and the people I was talking to in Sardinia saying exactly the same way, it's a great tradition. They love doing what their what their fathers and grandfathers did before. So it's it's exciting to do the tradition. It's exciting to to act a role always and be something else other than you are. It gives you freedom at the same time. You've got power when you're wearing a mask because you can see them, but they can't see you. They can't see the facial expressions. We see it ourselves to a certain extent in our COVID days when we're all masking up these days and we're trying to read everything out of the eyes. Mm -hmm. But in a full mask, there's nothing really to see. So you have a, a great deal of power when you're doing this. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we see this, there are some negative sides to it, of course, when you've got young guys dressing up in, in animal costumes and being able to chase young ladies around the streets mm -hmm. and, and even hit them with... with, with uh, sort of uh, sticks or hay or whatever else. Mm -hmm. I mean, certainly in Austria, then people get quite badly hurt sometimes because mm -hmm. the guys they'll, will get out of control. So there, there, there's certain ifs about the tradition in our, in, in our own days, but nonetheless, it's power, it's freedom, and it's traditional. And, and it's just fun, uh, certainly to be something like for any actor being something else for a while. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and it's exciting for those at home to a certain extent too. Of course, it's mystery. It's it's like a um, a thriller in its own way. Letting these strange people into your house. Who are they? And then the guessing game is fun too. Uh, and you find people talking about it in Shetland, where I've done most work, as I say, talking about it the whole next day. Did mm. you see it? What do you think? Who was the best person? They really acted. They did really well. Mm -hmm. uh, who was the, who was this other guy? Never seen that costume before. It's it's a it's a community game that underlines the community as a community. Mm. It's a shared tradition when it comes down to it. And so they often share up the food at the end of it or the drink in a sort of uh, a gathering afterwards. 
So there's this sort of really interesting element to it where the community is is reinscribed or reconnected to one another by bringing in not only like a foreign element, like as if it were a person from somewhere else, but mm -hmm. like a, a supernaturally foreign element. So I think in Iceland, you say it comes from over the hills, like Grilla comes over, comes over the, because most places have some mountains. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and very often again, Shetland, uh, there are yeah. places like Shetland, certainly, and, and uh, Iceland as well. I know that pe people will say, yeah, we, we are, the Christmas men, or we're 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 this guy who's come, we come from this inaccessible beach, from outside. So they are supernatural foreign figures coming from outside. That you're you're opening doors. It's a, it's, it's a time when you're opening the doors to the supernatural anyway. And we often hear a lot of connection about ghosts and things of that kind around at that time. And often the people who are going between houses know that there are supposed to be booglies out there as well. Hmm. Uh, so it's a bit spooky, as as, as my Shetland people told me being out there with no electric light, wandering between houses, and there are strange figures moving here and there. Are they are they real or are they spirits um, for the minute? So, so yeah. the, people, the people in the costumes believe also that these figures exist outside of themselves, that they're not just making it up. There seems to be, a, a, again, in those areas of Shetland where I did interviews with people, yes. You, you, you don't go out to the cow shed on your own at this time <laughs> because mm. there, there, are, there are things out there, spirits want on the move. In Norway, certainly in the past, maybe about a hundred years ago, people would often not leave the houses. Because what's happening largely, um, in Norway, the idea is, when we come down to it, there are mountain dairies that people go up to in the summertime. And so, so the our space, the human space, reaches right at the top of the mountains in the summer. By September, you're supposed to be leaving those dairies and coming down. And this is backed up by folk tales which say about young girls who are up there on their own after that time are in danger of being kidnapped by, by the, the hidden people or who are up in the mountains. So you must get out. And the idea is that they are moving in now to their mountain dairies. By the time we get to Christmas, and with the Icelandic idea of one Christmas man coming each day in the 12 days before Christmas, it's exactly this sort of idea. They're coming in to our area. As the world outside gets darker, and as the snow starts, starts coming down from the mountains, we're more and more closed in. And in Norway, there's certain areas nobody would go out on Christmas Day mm. because the wild riders outside at that time, the, 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 there are these forces out there. You don't leave because the area is, has been taken over by the supernatural landlords again. Mm. And then after that, you start coming out and we come back to the national day when everybody's outside again at mm. the middle of the summer. So there's this movement of light, dark, snow, spirits, the period of darkness, the period of death in the winter time. Right. And that's when, out of respect, you stay out of the realm of the, the other people, the other beings. In a sense, yeah, in a sense, yes. And, uh, uh, and of course, there are going to be varieties in, in every area running, running across this huge area I've talked about, mm -hmm. um, when these things are done and when the ideas take place. But this seems to be the heart of it, yes. Mm -hmm. When people talk about the, the wild ride or the, the wild hunt, I think it's commonly called, right? Um, is that is that the same thing? Yeah. Um, this seems to me to harken back to to pagan ideas. Is that because it's sometimes led by gods or other figures? Is that or like that have become folklore figures? There's a sort of there's a at least an assumption in popular culture that this is a pagan belief. Is this is this true? Is there some sort yeah, of line back through time? Absolutely. The, the, these these traditions, everything points to them, but certainly there's very little Christian about them. Mm 
except when we have Nicholas and we have that this, this sort of figure coming around to check whether kids can read and whatever in, 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 um, in <laughs> Germany and Austria. Everything about this points to this being much, much older than, than, than Christianity because it's associated with natural time, with natural festivals in the year, the beginning of winter, the midwinter period, midsummer and so on, beginning of summer. The wild ride, certainly we have later on connect, people have tried to connect it to the god Voltan, we're old in, in Icelandic, and, and the, uh, the dead that serve him it's pushing it quite a bit when it comes down to it. But there's certainly, there are differences between Denmark, Southern Sweden, Germany, and then Norway. Because in Norway, Western Norway, the, figures, the figure that leads it tends to be a woman. Mm. And that brings us back to the idea in Iceland, at least, of Grilla coming down from the mountains at this time with her Christmas lads and these figures taking over farms. So they're often represent, seen as being troll-like figures or the dead or people who are being punished but essentially the main the main thing is that it's a group coming from the outside from the wild who live in the mountains who come and attack or take over the farms and want to be given things food and stuff um, which they then take away with them and you're giving them a a sort of sacrifice of some kind you're giving them food and drink uh, sharing what you have with them and getting the blessing which is a supernatural blessing in one way it's also a sort of social blessing by the society you're that they have wanted to visit you if you're an outsider you don't get visited and you feel very much an outsider mm. if you don't they don't if, if the groups don't come and visit you and, and again the uh, interconnection between the groups and the beliefs and the stories uh, that we get of the wild ride mm. so yeah the wild ride is, is known again right even in the irish area we're dealing with something much earlier than christianity when it comes down to it mm. um but interesting, at least, that again, we have in Western Norway and Iceland and moving across the North Atlantic Islands uh, into Ireland, we have this female figure who represents the winter time. And winter, of course, begins with also a festival called the Dísablót in Scandinavian, which is the, the festival of the of the Dísit, who are female family protecting spirits. Mm-hmm. You tell a story about, from from well, it's a, it's a well-known story because it's in a saga, but you tell a story about how the, the Deseer arrive one night um, after a man's been warned yep. <laughs> to go outside. That's a wonderful, it's a wonderful sort of, it's a thautud, which means it's a, it's a short saga. And it's wonderful. It's a wonderful mixture of Christianity and pagan belief. Mm. And basically tells how some people before Christianity comes to Iceland are going to hold a, a party, a festival, inside a farmhouse in the countryside somewhere and it's at it's going to be at the Dísablót or the the winter nights which is the end of the the beginning of winter the two are together and one guy who is sort of clairvoyant who's seen as being a, a sort of prophet in some way he says nobody must go out tonight um, because it's very very dangerous and there are still some people who haven't arrived yet and as a young guy on the farm who goes around washing everybody's feet in a sort of Jesus-like figure and giving up his bed to other people who are visiting. And then suddenly in the middle of the night, there's a knock on the door and he says, I have to go and open it. They say, don't because it's dangerous. And he says, no, I'm, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna let these people in. So he goes outside and as he walks in into the farm, you can see in the darkness, two groups of women riding onto the farm from outside, one dressed one in white clothes and one in black. And they, 
have weapons with them, they attack him, they kill him, and he's found outside the next day dead. And it's interpreted by this man, um, who's, the, who's a clairvoyant, that what's happening, what was happening here, the white figures were the figures of coming Christianity who will be looking after the family in the future. The black figures uh, are the old protecting spirits of the farm. And, and really what the, this is a sign of the coming of the new religion. Um, and then talks later on at the end of the story about how that he can see the hills opening up and people, all the little elves and people moving, but moving because Christianity is coming along. But essentially we're dealing with this, the festival of the Desit at the beginning of winter, which is actually not far away from in Iceland Women's Day. And it's, it's that festival which has, the church has borrowed later on a move to All Hallows. Mm -hmm. But again, the idea of the dead visiting and these women are probably then the dead foremothers or something of this kind of the family. Right. Um, the but men inside the house and women outside the house, which is a sort of inversion. It's mm. a very interesting switch going on here in this in the story. We hear about no women inside the house, but it's a woman's festival. And then the women are attacking from outside from the wild. So years ago when we spoke on my podcast last time, you mentioned, and this was off the recording, so if some, anyone's listening, they won't be able to find it, but you mentioned um, a sense that you had, having done a lot of research on these winter visitors, that the winter time in Scandinavia was somehow probably previously the domain of, of women in some way, mm -hmm. supernaturally. Can you elaborate on that? Maybe? It's based on a number of, it, it is my, it, it's a suggestion. Um, based on a number of things that we have, remnants from old times. And certainly the idea that in Ireland and in Iceland, the key figure of winter is a female figure who's become a sort of troll, which will be partly Christian influence coming in here. And then the fact that we have this beginning of winter festival with women being the main figures. And also that we have other traditions which tell of women going around between farms, coming in from outside to the farm again, and prophesying how the year is going to be. Mm. So most of the things associated with rituals at that beginning of the winter time seem to be associated with women. Then we have connected with this partly the fact that in Old Norse mythology, we have gods going away all the time. And we, we rarely sort of see husband and wives together. Um, we don't see Freyr and Freya, who are brother and sister, together. But each of them goes away from home searching for, in a sense, their other half in one way or another. So what that's going on here? Why isn't Thor here when he's he's often in the other world somewhere fighting giants? He should be here to look after us. Mm -hmm. So what's going on with this idea of moving moving away and regular traveling and leaving leaving the wife at home, as in the case of Odin, for example. He goes away, his wife rules for a while. Um, so is this 
potentially the idea that in a sense men go away at a certain time of the year and the, fe the females are away at another time of the year as a spirit we get this movement going on hmm. as closely associated with this is the fact that the big festival in Uppsala at the beginning of summer in in Sweden where they talk about it being associated with the Desit, there are in fact no women there um, but we only have three male gods so where are the women who are associated with the main hall that's supposed to be there mm -hmm. and then of course the other key feature of it is that if we look at the year anyway it's divided into the realm of the farm was divided very much into the realm of men and the realm of women the realm of women was the farmhouse they had the keys to the house they looked after the slaves um, the men did the trade the battle the the uh, harvesting so in the winter time is a period when men move into the world of women into the house under their control in the summertime they come out and the winter, of course, is also the time of darkness. It's the time when growth goes on within the land, a little bit like pregnancy to a certain extent. Um, so it's things going on in the dark inside, and the summertime is when everything comes onto the outside. Um, and that's the time for harvesting and, and killing and things of this kind. So to try and, uh, try and explain these ideas of female spirits being here at certain times of the year, and even Thor dressing up as a woman at a particular point, in one myth, um, I just raised the suggestion that is uh, is this idea of the female festival at the beginning of the year connected perhaps with the idea that the winter was seen as a period associated with women, like the figure like Freya, um, who is said to get half of the dead, whatever happens. So the people who die in the winter time might be hers, mm. whereas the people who die in the other time of the year might be Odin's. Mm. Um, so the, the, it's a number of little jigsaw pieces that. Uh, uh, I've suggested might give this sort of idea of a, of a division in the year mm -hmm. before and this would there be a period before we start getting new warrior kings who take a, um, a, yeah. become not chieftains but sort of national kings mm -hmm. before the church comes in which follows on the same sort of idea very male-centered in both cases and then you can see why women their position starts being put more to one side as, as war starts dominating and or, or, or Christianity starts dominating um, and I was arguing with somebody else the other day the fact that Odin has the god Odin has one dark eye and one light eye mm -hmm. in a sense we see him taking over both parts of the year the world of darkness and the world of light mm. um, that's another pure loose suggestion <laughs> that's fascinating I I remember um, I read an article Pantheon what Pantheon that you mm -hmm. wrote and it was suggesting that our picture of the Norse pantheon or not, you know, um, group of gods and, and their importance and relative importance is very much shaped by the culture that was, I mean, I guess, obviously, but not to everyone, I suppose, um, mm -hmm. the culture that was that was in place right before Christianity and during the transition, because the, the texts are written post, you know, conversion by hundreds of years. Um, Absolutely. We've got this middle stage. I've suggested also that, that, that the what what takes place in around about the year 500 mm -hmm. which where we know geologically and archaeologically there was a huge volcanic eruption somewhere mm -hmm. which blackened out the sun in about 536 which harvests didn't come people didn't see the sun for a couple of years um this caused total upheaval within scandinavia mm -hmm. and also helped on the idea of much it's a lot of warfare as people are people are looking for crops and ways to live 
we, we see this move from tribes to nations taking place mm -hmm. and very much a male society with large armies surrounding them. We're moving into a sort of more of a feudalist feudalism and, and their, their model in some degree as well of offering an afterlife to their warriors is borrowing from Christianity. The idea of Olin mm. dying on the tree and coming back to life again. You can see Christian elements floating in mm -hmm. this time. So, so this, this change of a move away from a religion that's rooted in the ground, rooted in local um, places of worship, groves and things like this, to a movable religion that's where the, where the chieftain becomes the god in a sense, uh, a little bit like the priests become Jesus as they break the bread and, and whatever else at the table. Um, the change from a set religion that's rooted in the landscape to one that's more military, more male dominated, and it's a movable religion like Christianity. Right, with a sort of centralized authority. And this is, I think, yeah. if I remember properly, is this why Odin is so um, emphasized in in, in the sources that we have, yes, because yeah. the source, it's a little bit like uh, uh, Belasconi back in the past, if you ruled the media, mm -hmm. um, and, and we see it, of course, in our own countries with Murdoch and whatever else too. Mm -hmm. If you control the media, and the media at this time was the poets and the saga writers, if you're in charge of them, they'll make, they'll make you and your world very central. Mm -hmm. So what's left is what's been preserved through them, but it's very much uh, what remains is around the rulers. It's not from the average people in the countryside. Right. Uh, so the idea of Odin being the big chief, certainly with the kings, and it's a, it's a new religion going top down rather than bottom up, mm -hmm. uh, taking on this new figure. We, therefore, we find him as being, being set up as being the main, the main god over the other gods. But the evidence that we have is, is that Odin, for example, wasn't really known in Iceland at all amongst the people there or in Western Norway. Same from place names. So it, it's a it's a stilted picture that we're given that we have to be be very wary about. Mm -hmm. I understand that there's um, there's more female named gods in the record, just the names and lists of names and such, than than male. It's just that is that is that yeah, yeah. but just less stories about them. No information. <laughs> yeah, ex exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But if we certainly if we look at the world of death, mm -hmm. then the world of death. We always think of the idea of Valhalla, Valhalla. Mm -hmm. this again, very male center world. This is, this is associated with that elite. Mm -hmm. But most people, most cases, we're dealing with a world of death and darkness that's ruled by a woman. Mm. Uh, like Hel, for example, and Raun and Freya and Skade and Gebjörn, which I have a student working on at the moment. Why is it that women are associated with death? But maybe that means that we have to get beyond looking at death as we look at it and see death as being life. Uh, this is what happens in nature, that death becomes life. Mm. And that life and death are actually part of the same thing. Right. And that, that would explain, I mean, or at least to me, it would seem natural that then the winter season, the season of darkness that precedes the, the bright season would be associated with the feminine. Um, right. Who also are often more associated with insight and more supernatural gifts, at least, tend to be associated with women than with men. Mm -hmm. the, the senses, the, the uh, prophecy, the, the only ones who can see into the future in, in the old Norse mythology are women. Mm. Partly because they, they, they're drawing their knowledge from the world of death, it seems. 
they, they have a close association with death and with the wild and nature rather than the farmhouse itself uh, although as i say it looks sort of opposite when we're talking about other things but darkness the inside well it's interesting that there's these two different models of death at play that you're talking about there's the the death in war and battle and so even hunting and then there's the kind of almost more natural death is that yeah <laughs> that would no, be connected with uh, the feminine yeah absolutely but in a sense natural death is winter Mm -hmm. This is the time when, 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 when the world goes to sleep mm -hmm. and, and you hope for the sun will come back, especially in Scandinavian areas or northern areas of Canada. Mm -hmm. um, you, you, you hope you've got enough food in there to get you to get yourself through the year as your kids look up at you. Mm -hmm. you has the harvest been good enough? It's a big mm -hmm. time, big question time. It's, it's a mountain to climb winter mm -hmm. in each case. And we both live in very dark areas and then now it yeah it gets dark around 4 p.m where i live and probably sooner in iceland yeah, <laughs> although you haven't yeah, done the time well, we've change got of, <laughs> <laughs> we've got, well, we stay at the same time but there's a lot of clouds today and it's incredibly dark outside at four mm -hmm. it's not totally dark yet so um we've gone down an amazing rabbit hole <laughs> <laughs> you asked I, really, <laughs> I know I did. I was hoping for it. I'm trying to think of how to reconnect with the idea of these processions. Well, we still haven't talked about um there's 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 petroglyphs representing people in animal costumes right. that you've you've written about before. And I'm curious about how that might connect with this tradition. Well, again, certainly the idea of the animal costume, we have very early evidence of this. We even if we go back to the Stone Age, we we have from the north of Norway images which show people wearing animal costumes and dancing so the shaman essentially who takes on the, the animal spirit of an animal to a certain extent becomes an animal mm -hmm. very common feature of shamanism and and of course with the native americans you find this sort of idea very very common runs right the way through the bronze age where we have people again wearing horns um and seemingly maybe animal animal skins bird wings for example quite common as well in that time mm. as we go into the viking period it's still going on um on one side we have the berserkit uh, who are warriors berserkit and ulfhednit who are warriors who seem to dress up in skins and lose themselves in battle and howl and scream and yell and don't feel pain but we also have people have found animal masks a couple of animal masks found in um Heidebu in the south of what was the south of Denmark now in north of north north of Germany, in in uh, the caulking for, for the for, for a ship that they found in a harbour there, and we have an account of Scandinavian warriors in Constantinople entertaining the emperor of Constantinople Constantine Porphyrogenitus in about the year one thousand, in animal costumes dancing for him, um, and seemingly a festival a dance of some kind associated with Christmas. So again, we, we have this element being very, very old of, of, of animal figures at Christmas time. And if we go on to later time connect going on in Iceland, uh, this figure Grilla, who's later this, this female ogress who travels around, comes in from the wild. We have a man who conducts satire in dances of other people and annoys somebody badly by making fun of him in dances. And this man is called Steingrimur Skin Grilla's son. He is the son of Skin Grilla. Mm. And so again, Grilla of the skins. 
and her later name, we hear about that she has lots of tails behind her, which seems again to be skins hanging behind her. Uh, and that's well known also in, in, in both Shetland and, and, uh, and uh, the Faroe Islands. Same sort of idea. Uh, uh, stories of her, descriptions of her, is that she's got horns again, she's got animal-like feet. So we're, we're going right the way back uh, in, into Viking times, Bronze Age times, Stone Age times. But it's an element of totemism that goes back to hunting peoples, uh, where, where you become the animal, you in a ho in a sense by becoming the, the horned animal, which is a uh, it's going to be we've got moose with the goat, the bull, whatever, very masculine in many ways, but also you're asking, I suppose, the animal to bring you crops and things that you could hunt for the next year. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's it's a sympathetic magic tradition to try and get. The, the animal world to look after you mm. and, to sh and to show um, understanding of your needs about food. Mm. So you work with the animal world. I think this is what we're dealing with here um, in that case. That's fascinating. It's, I'm so curious about what that feeling is. Like, I think, you know, on one side, it's hard to know, um, you know, for sure what people's motivation is, but then um, you would know as someone who works with like performance that when you are in a performance, there is a sort of, um, there's a phenomenology of it that almost explains itself. Like the experience um, yeah. can bring knowing. It's, it's one of the key problems that so often descriptions tend to show what it looks like from outside, what it was like to receive mm. these figures rather than being inside. Mm. What I thoroughly recommend if people can get hold of it is a, is a short story written by the Faroese author, um, William Heinerson mm. called The Grilla. And it describes a man who dresses up every year as the gorilla and what happens to him as he puts this stinking smelly costume on up in the loft of his house and then comes down he's got a sort of wooden phallus as well that appears from out of the from out of the skins <laughs> as he enters the street and what he becomes as he goes out there it's, it's a wonderful description of a sort of state of madness that he goes into every year when he dresses up mm -hmm. um as this figure sort of crawls along the streets and frightens people. It's an experience, I'm sure. But I know the people, the people I've met who do this, that they, they, they love doing it. And of course, it's, become, it's, it's been moved away from that generation. In most places, it's moved away from that generation of young males, unmarried males to children. It's mm -hmm. been, society has made it safer by, by but children are easily pushed around by their teachers and become sweet. Um, but the, the Sardinian tradition I looked at and the tradition that I've, I've done interviews with people about in, in Shetland and, and uh, others have done in, in Denmark, the, the, these guys love doing this. And we are seeing women beginning to take part in it too, gradually. Mm -hmm. But it, is, it tends to be something they want to do. They look forward to every year, um, dressing up in these costumes. And in a sense, becoming... It's a little bit like, I suppose, a priest becoming Jesus to a certain extent. But you're becoming your, your forefathers mm. by doing this. You did what they did. Yeah, totally. <laughs> That's wonderful. Okay, so I have um, one more question. So I'll come back to this idea that there's, you've mentioned there's a, a missing link between these processions and these um, pagan ritual dramas and guising traditions in, in Northern European countries. And... What I'm curious about it is what is the what is the root 
desire. Cause I think to me, that's sort of the clue where it's, um, it doesn't necessarily, maybe there's like a historical thread where somebody learned something from someone else, but maybe there's also like some sort of innate drive or interest, you know, that, that would just carry through time periods, regardless of the culture. The drive, there's a number of drives, I think, going, going on here. One, one is simply the tradition of doing what your forefathers have always done. The second one is the drive of being able to become something different, uh, not yourself for a while. The freedom that you're given by dressing up in costumes. I ask kids why they like trick-and-treating. It's not just for the Swedes. It's the idea of becoming witches and becoming something else. So, so that th there's there's that element too, and especially in the dark period of the of, of the of the autumn, I think it, it livens the day up as things are starting to get wet and dark and whatever else. It's it's, it's the last fling before we all actually move into our houses uh, and sort of shut down for winter. But in, and when it's in the middle of winter, uh, Christmas and New Year, of course, the same sort of thing. It, it's the festive middle time. We celebrate then the rising of the sun coming back after this time. So I think it's a, there's, there's a range of uh, things that are just attractive about it. And, and we all know it ourselves, the fun of dressing up in costumes. I've also looked at school traditions um, as that same generation now starting doing things in schools that they dress up as they graduate. Hmm. And, and they go around the classrooms dressed up in costumes, um, exactly the same thing as they used to do on the farms in the past. It's, it's that same generation that, in, that really loves Halloween. It's not just little ones, but the Halloween ball mm -hmm. being something different for an evening. Mm -hmm. So I, I think there's a, there's a number of things that encourage, make people want to do this. Mm -hmm. um, but not least the, the element of, of, of Saturnalia, in a sense, freedom to, to be something else for a while and to be something supernatural. Mm-hmm. So how do you think, um, so many of my listeners are in North America and they really long to, to connect with these traditions and to integrate them into their daily lives. Do you have any suggestions of how they might think about this in ways that, um, that, that are not hopeless, you know, or all, all is lost? No, but, but, but I think to a certain extent, they are already doing it on Halloween. You go around, when I was, when I was in um, Berkeley recently, just before Halloween, and looking at the way that the decorations of the houses and adults are as much enjoying receiving as anything else that the kids are. Mm -hmm. So encouraging these things, letting, letting them keep going, but also realizing the fact that these, it, it isn't just Christianity that we're dealing with here. We are dealing with something much, much deeper mm -hmm. and, and nice for women at least to, to consider the fact that, that maybe there's a feminine element of this. In Iceland, it's closer to say to Women's Day, to be proud of that too. So we get away a little bit from all hallows. Um, I'm not bringing the devil back in or anything of this kind, but simply, um, simply uh, realizing that, that that the roots are something a little bit deeper and and older, and connected to nature and change within nature, because trick and treating tends to be houses and buildings, but it's realizing what's going on in a wider context mm. at this time. Mm -hmm. That answers if that's an answer that will suit you. <laughs> yes, it does. I think it's it's really helpful because again, like it brings it back to nature and which is which is ever present, right? This is something we can refer to without without need of a cultural mediator or concern that you know Christianity has wiped out all the information or 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and get a, get away from commercialism around this as too. There's, there's lots of other things you can do without needing to buy stuff. It, it, it is somewhere deep at heart. And as I say, really what's happening with Halloween is, is the core of any drama. It's the visit from outside, but it's the creation of a community. And I think with North America at the moment, the need to underline with a shared tradition like this, that this is something that, that, that we all share without being left or right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you certainly see it, mumming traditions in Northern Ireland on the border there went beyond Protestant Catholic and brought all of the people there together. Um, and I think this is a, but taking part in something like this, but Halloween is not right or left mm-hmm. when it comes down to it. Nature is not right or left. It doesn't know any of these things. Mm-hmm. And it's much bigger than our little petty grievances of now. It's been going on for 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 centuries and in a sense it comes back to also our, our awareness of the importance of nature which we also need to be really considering at the moment as mm-hmm. we're in the danger of just messing up our planet and we haven't got much time to change things mm-hmm. uh, to, to realize what's happening around this as as the year goes into darkness we hope the sun's going to come back and that really depends on what we do with it if we, if we want the world to come back to life again mm-hmm. Well, and it's interesting to reflect too, just that um, having mentioned, you know, around the year 500, when there was a, you know, an environmental catastrophe, that this Mm. this experience of the seasons becoming out of joint, climate change is not not, um, new, though it does have enormous impacts, right? This may have been the birth Mm. of the whole shift into, or it was the birth of the whole shift into warrior culture, which we're still really experiencing, I think. It was was huge. We, we, We see, we know the Bronze Age, carvings that the sun was everywhere mm. and it's still going on on the Gotland carvings on Gotland stones in about 500 and then just suddenly disappears mm. um, so some new images take over around that time the sun because what happened to the sun it's a little bit like after Santorini blows up uh, and, and endangers Crete mm-hmm. um, at that time it's a huge climate disaster and and it, it's it's reminds us of the fact that things can the sun can go out Mm-hmm. and the world cannot can reach a point where it doesn't come back to life again we need to watch it mm-hmm. well um <laughs> <laughs> on that note <laughs> but there is the there is the positive sort of for me anyway and this maybe is a little dire but the positive idea that like we've experienced this before that um it's it isn't necessary it's you know it may be the end of of the human world at some point but the world itself that's why it's so i think it's, it's essential we can if we look at it in a more positive sense what's happening at halloween is 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 uh, an expression of a hope that the world will come back to life again at the end of the year as we get together as a community within the house we, we close down we celebrate we have the last game and and by doing this in a sense we underline our community and we underline our wish that the world will continue I suppose one can, then we can take that festival and put it into a modern setting. And that's mm-hmm. what's happening at the beginning of the winter is, is the, our, our desire to, to be together and our desire to go beyond the darkness. Well, thank you. That's beautiful. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> it's lovely to nice. talk to you. Likewise.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Fair Folk Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you're interested in the writings of Terry Gunnell, you can find a number of them online. In PDF form, you can look him up on academia.edu, or you can Google his book, Masks and Mumming in the Northern in the Nordic Countries, I think it's called. He has that entire book online for free. He has articles on seasonal customs, and he's often asked for interviews by news outlets about Icelandic winter monsters and tradition in general, as well as elf belief. If you're interested in following what I'm doing outside of the podcast, I'm very active these days on Instagram. I've been offering almost daily pep talks about how to live your life with greater spiritual connection and confidence and inspiration as I've been doing lately and practicing as I'm on my journey and learning how to become more and more myself and to tell better and more nourishing stories. I'm inviting you along with me in that process and in that reflection. So join me there on Instagram if you like. In December, I'll be talking more about something that's coming up, a new offering that I'm thrilled about. I can't wait for you to join me there to go deeper into the themes of paganism, animism, folklore, abundance mindset, and living your best life on this earth with all of its beings in great love and excitement and joy. So I'll be talking about that, especially on Instagram, but also on the podcast through the month of December. I am so excited for this winter. I know it sounds wild because there's so many things that are in upheaval and there's a lot of difficulty that I fully acknowledge, but I'm really noticing that for myself, I've been so lucky to be able to use this time for transformation and for greater sharing and opening up. I'm starting to feel like there's just no excuse to not show up for the people who need to hear what I have to say and to encourage others to do exactly the same because we are all so full of divine inspiration. We are just vessels for the goodness of this earth and every mouth that opens in song or in sharing, in joy, and in mutual support is of such high value now and has more spread, more strength, more oomph behind it than ever before in history. So I'm just loving the conversation that's going on. I'm loving the expansions that I'm witnessing. I love to see what you're doing, what stories you're telling yourselves in reflection to the ones that I'm telling here. So if you're inspired by anything I'm posting or saying or sharing on the podcast, share it up on your social media, share it on Facebook or on Instagram, which is where I usually am. And I would love to share it again and show people where you're at and what you're seeing and feeling and thinking. If you're interested in having live Q&A conversations with me regularly, I'm doing that on Patreon these days, and I'm also pre-sharing interviews before I've released them on the podcast, just like this one. I put it out last week on Patreon. My patrons get advanced episodes whenever I do online Zoom interviews with folks. So if you'd like to see more of me, you can join me on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash fairfolkcast, or find me on Instagram at Danica voice. All my love to you in this winter season. I hope that you're cozy and you're able to nestle down somewhere dark and safe and reflect on the things in your life that are or can be beautiful for you. Thank you to the musicians who provided music for this episode, particularly Sylvia Woods, whose song Forest March is the opening theme. Take good care, and I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>